series on the Paramis. And uh, this is the second talk on truthfulness, truthfulness, honesty. In some ways, I could go anywhere on this talk I wanted to, because honesty is the whole thing. Uh, we work very diligently in many different directions, but unless we have honesty as the foundation on how we work, then however we work will be faulty and won't lead to the depth that uh, an intention of where it's directed. So I just I want to um, encourage people uh, towards their own honesty in this talk. But I was moved. Um, I was very moved this morning. I received a phone call from a dear friend and fellow Sangha member who is in the latter stages of her terminal illness, just receiving a diagnosis and prognosis yesterday said she had as little as six weeks to live. And then I was just wondering, uh, and as I spoke to her on the phone, <clears throat> I thought, well, you know, this would be a wonderful journey for all of us to take together as this unfolds. <clears throat> and of course, it's completely up to her whether she wants to invite that companionship along with her, but uh, I know as a Sangha, we would be a very responsive to the needs of this person. And uh, as she was dying, even if she needed round-the-clock coverage, I'm sure we could provide that. Because our hearts are very um, available here. Uh, we come here, we're good people. I don't some of you may not feel like good person, but that's because of your own sense of self-evaluation, not because in the greater scheme of things you're not a decent person. You're a decent person if you are interested in the dark. You have to have some light showing even to show up and want to hear this, this, uh, this uh, Dharma talk or any Dharma talk. But there is confusion in that goodness. And uh, the evolution of our spirit is uh, often uh, obscured early on, even though we have a lot of light shining and we want to be helpful. Often we bring ourselves along uh, too conclusively so that that light doesn't really penetrate that uh, aspiration to serve or to help. And I was thinking in terms of my death and dying uh, history, uh, working with uh, terminally ill patients, how many of the caregivers who went out to the homes of people who were dying did so because they genuinely wanted to assist in whatever way they could. But where the... Um, the their, their sense of um, their lack of depth of understanding they brought their need to help, their sympathy their pity along with them and forced the person who was dying into a rather awkward role of receiving sympathy uh, and it was just because we weren't clear enough in ourselves to realize that uh, you know, sympathy really isn't much of an aid and assistance to helping. 
uh, when we have a kind of sympathetic focus with someone, uh, that's because we're well and they're not. And we're kind of looking down, not indignantly, but in sort of a, of a sense of, well, you know, from our health to your sickness. And from that disadvantaged place, we are then willing to help because we are better off than they are. And any time we are not dealing with a sense of equality, looking through our own uh, very precarious position on this earth, especially when we're working with death and dying, we're all, we're all, um, and are, we're all terminally ill. And when we are realize we're terminally ill, we're in absolute equality with those who we are working, and it has not a. It's not a, a system of pity or, or sympathy, but of, of wanting to embrace our own mortality as we are moving into that relationship. Uh, and how quickly the deceit, the deceit of ourselves, of our self-protection, of our health, covers over that fragility of what we really are. How we so wish that we could live forever. How we, so we so wish that our health would continue. And when we aren't in tune with its discontinuance, when we aren't attuned to how fragile we do live, then we show up for, with somebody who is terminally ill and who is in that fragile condition from a sense of arrogance. Not, not um, a malicious arrogance by any means. It's an innocent, unconscious arrogance. But it's an arrogance nonetheless. And what people are really looking for in any uh, form of help is that willingness to share, the, the willingness to share their space together. And therefore, equally the problem that is being addressed is not your problem, but a system of being able to hold that problem where it resonates so deeply in us that we're not sure who holds the problem. When I was with the dying, and when I was at my best, I could release the sense that I was a caregiver entirely. And I could listen to the person and they could take me, walk me through my own dying experience through their tale, in which I felt not only empathetically for what they were feeling, but also the level of emotional response that I would have in that situation. And it wasn't in any way a projection of their, of me being out or out from under death's thumb at that moment, but rather that we were both within its hold and that we were working with a common human experience for our own fragility on this earth. And I think that when we live within kind of a trance bubble of ourselves, when we live as if life is going to go on forever, as if there was no end to this, we live within the thought-provoking assumption that our past has been certain, so therefore our future is certain. And that trancing of our life into that sort of thinking narrative that we have going with ourselves, it keeps us very distant, very separate from other human beings who are in need. 
And the moment, you can, can you imagine what the moment must have been like? As this woman, a physician said, you know, I, I am sorry, but uh, the prognosis is this, and you have only a short time to live. Just have that information imparted to us, to be given to us, out of the blue. And what absolute honesty it must take, and courage at the same time, to be able to hear that and to actually come to terms with what this person is telling me. I think most of us would have gone into a state of abject denial, where we would have said, okay, I need a second and third opinion on this, I'm not taking your word. We would have backed away from the information, wouldn't we? We would have just refused to believe it, because, you see, the mind, when it's in its denial phase, when it's in its least honest presentation, when it's caught within its own trance of continuance, it just doesn't have ears to hear that that continuance isn't going to happen. That this life is going to be pulled out from under us like a rug. And for us to be able to hear what the doctor says in that moment pokes, it's like uh, putting a pin in the bubble of our trance, putting a pin in the bubble of our narrative. Suddenly the narrative is blown away. We now exist free of any sense of having a certain future whatsoever. But it's not just not having a future. It's not having any meaning. Not having any purpose if your future is taken away. Because you begin to see how much we reside and, and uh, invest in having some time yet to be, some time yet to go, some time yet to live. And when that's taken away, what is, what's the purpose? What's the point? as many hospice patients have said to me. What's the point of us sitting here together? What's the point? Because is it to become better people? Is it to do something with this and move it forward so that our lives become something? But what if we don't have that time? What's the point in sitting here? What if I was to say with some degree of certainty that the world would end in three minutes. Not enough time to make a phone call. Not enough time to leave and get back home. Would you sit here? You see? Or would you go into panic? I think this group would probably sit here. But I think it would sit here very differently then many of us sit here whereas we listen to a dog or talk in which we do have the car outside and certainty that we are going home. This trance becomes all-consuming. This trance of certainty about ourselves moving forward is a form of denial about the conditions of life that we live with forever. Forever. We live on so many crossing fault lines at this area that's amazing that only in geological time do we survive. 
And so you get a you get a phone call from your doctor saying, "Please come in and see me." And you get the news that the continuance is no more. And then you see the layers of dishonesty. And dishonesty is not a malicious dishonesty. It's just that we cover ourselves in a kind of package denial, in a package defensiveness, so that we can have life exactly as we want it to be, exactly as it's programmed out. And many of our lives actually do go according to that program until we come to the end. We live the 70 years we anticipated. But many of our lives do not. And to get that information and to feel the erosion of some of the force of denial that we have placed around ourselves to keep ourselves in trance, and that denial, that force of denial, that force of dishonesty, said in light in alignment with the talk to not, not as a deliberate, malicious dishonesty. But that sense of denial, of just refusing the truth of life. Even though we come here week after week, we sit day after day in the orientation to, to align ourselves with the truth of what things really are. How many of us actually live that truth? How many of us are really to walking on the edge of our mortality and feeling the uncertainty with each step we take on this earth. And if we have not raged at the dark, it's ugly. I hate where it's taking me. Then we have not seen the implications of what the dark is asking. There could be, when we realize what we're being asked of in this practice, what honesty looks like up close, personal, if that rage doesn't, is that wave of rage doesn't move through us. We don't understand the implications. For our life is playing hardball with us. And it's showing us the exact nature of the rules. That there are no rules. That all rules are abandoned. is unfair play. And for us to show up, show up for these truths, there's no truth that will get our attention like death. None. None. There's a certainty. There have been something like a hundred billion deaths since time immemorial, since we took shape as a human being. hundred billion. And I can promise you with certainty that in the next hundred years there will be six billion more. Any other disaster comparative to that 
in which we were certain that there were going to be six billion deaths within a certain would be just catastrophic. And yet this one is completely denied. <coughs> it's not even attended to. And we can see the response by knowing ourselves, by knowing, watching how our denial gives way. Because once our denial gives way, there's a crack in the opening of honesty where consciousness faces its ending. Can no longer deny its ending, such as what must have taken place in this woman's heart when she was given her prognosis, because from the tone of her voice, she says, I may need help, but I realize what's going on. But most of us strike for a, as we open. As the, if you look at the mind as being a, a sh shyly, tightly shut, uh, which is the state of denial, and then it has a crack of light that enters it as it's given its diagnosis and prognosis. And then that, that uh, beam of light uh, ray resonates a kind of vulnerability in which we are no longer protected. And what that vulnerability does is it lashes out with further defenses, with anger. Because if we understand that when we are denying the truth, the truth, we're trying to protect ourselves from something we think the truth will do to us. And sure enough, when the truth is allowed in, the sense of vulnerability, of exposure. And there are few emotional responses that we have that feel as, uh, as cutting and as traumatic as vulnerability. Because we have no power. We have no power. We have no control. The very reasons that we live are for power and control. And so when we expose ourselves to this truth, the defense that comes to bear is anger, rage. Because what does rage do? But it allows us to have a sense of righteous indignation. It says, oh, the doctor made a mistake, or the God, why are you doing this to me? Or it has a, it has a focus for its rage. It has a blame. It has a blame. And as long as we can blame it, then, in fact, we are no longer, we are back in control. And we can usually do something about that blame, like sue, or whatever we our knee-jerk reaction is. But in death and dying, you we have that rage. Like how could I have what's a matter and all of that? But it can't be but still you're vulnerable. There's no 
After 9-11, you can blame it on the terrorists and then fight the terrorists. But what are you going to blame it on when you receive a prognosis that your life is coming to What's Where's the retaliation going to focus? And so that's a, that's a phase that often passes relatively quickly, although I have seen some sustained cases of it. And so a little more light gets in because the anger doesn't have a fixed fixture, doesn't have a focus, a focus. And then the other phases of terminal illness, of the reactions to grief and loss, come in. The bargaining, the depression. And then the resignation. The sense, the adaptation is resignation. It's not the letting go. It's poorly phrased as acceptance, but it's not acceptance. I rarely see acceptance. Mostly it's resignation that I have to live with this, so I just might as well, you know, move forward. But that's adaptation. And I want to spend just a moment talking the difference between letting, surrendering, and adaptation, because we're very good at adaptation, but we're very poor at surrendering. Adaptation is modification of limitation, of living within a kind of limitation, until that limitation becomes the expected form that we live within, the expected lifestyle that we live within, and then we adjust sufficiently, and then we're okay with it. We actually can get very attached to all forms of adaptation. If you think of it, as a species, we can live anywhere in the world. And then we get very protective of where we live, no matter what those conditions are. If we live in the Arctic, the Eskimos get very protective of their ice sheet. Or if we live on a desert, we can adapt to being able and willing to live on a desert. And this sense of adaptation then takes on a kind of grasping attachment to associated with what it is. Our comfort level is spread to our adaptation level. And now we can become comfortable within the limits of whatever it is, and then we defend those limits. But what is surrender? Surrender is a very different configuration of the moment in which there are no limitations. Oh, not that I can do whatever my body always wanted it to do. It's just that we don't expect it. There's no expectation that it would or ever move in any other way than the way it's moving. There's no anger, there's no resistance, there's no argument to the way it's moving. And therefore there's no adaptation to the way it's moving. And therefore there are no limits on the way it's moving. Psychic limits. And we begin to see that awareness is what we want to defend ourselves against more than anything. Because awareness won't allow adaptation. 
If I made some noise, continuous for the 40 minutes that we sit, they have shown in experiments that someone who is meditating doesn't adapt to the sound that's coming in. But they don't struggle with it either. They just hear it as a sound, a bell, or whatever it is, consistently over the 40-minute time. Whereas someone who is not trained will actually adapt their mind so that they won't hear it. You see the difference? So to someone who wants their comfort level and is willing to adapt to it, awareness stands as an opposition to adaptation. An enemy of adaptation. Because it doesn't allow us to become comfortable with it. It doesn't allow a guard to come up. And when we are guardless, that is the definition of honesty, of truthfulness. I find it very interesting when you start looking at what happens when the truth comes rushing in in trauma, through trauma. Or it, the same thing happens in small incidental truths that happen to us continuously throughout the day even. But when it's a traumatic truth, like a terminal illness, <clears throat> that there is a concurrent reactivity from mind, emotion, and body. Because there are three levels of intelligence that we have that, are, that correspond to one another, but ne don't necessarily overlap. And you can see somebody, as they hear the truth, often have a physical jarring, which is the body the body's attempt to open to. And then there can be the emotional response, which can be anything, depending upon our conditioned reference to trauma. And there could also be a spiritual response. I was telling someone today that I had a friend who, uh, two friends who was driving in a car, and was uh, hit broadside by another car that ran a red light. And the moment uh, that car was struck, in which uh, miraculously nobody was seriously injured, the man who was not driving but was in the passenger seat closest to the car that was broadsided said, at the moment of impact, wrong. Just like uh, Gandhi. Surrender. Surrender. Bubble, bubble popped. You see? Did you feel that? You feel the life of that moment? Not looking back and saying, no, not looking back at all. Wrong. 
Buddha, Christ, whatever. And these levels of simultaneous levels of reactivity that go through our system, the part of us that would like us all to be corralled under some sort of spiritual definition tries to modify those responses. Like, I shouldn't be feeling this. As if while you were dying, you should be feeling a certain way. (laughs) That you shouldn't be feeling despair or anger. I've often said that when I die, I want none of my students around because I don't want to be told how awful I'm doing in comparison to their expectations. (laughs) Just the most mature that understands whatever comes out. Even if I scream. So, how strong are we, you see, to face our own honesty, to face our screams? without kind of self-adjusting those screens so that we can better fit our spiritual ideal. There is no spiritual ideal in this. There's just the reaction. And to fully embrace that reactivity, regardless, oh, I shouldn't be angry, I've been practicing for 20 years, does nothing but create more pain. And to feel the fragility, to feel the gentleness, to feel the tenderness that fragility brings. We'll want to feel the fragility when we realize the tenderness that corresponds to it. Often with people in grief, their heart is being most affected because of that emotion. It's a tenderizing emotion. It makes everything precious. And it makes the feeling, the affect. Everything is affecting us. As long as we're not recoiling in reactivity to the grief itself. Letting that grief in is a tenderizing. But all emotions can tenderize. To take us to an orientation of truth, of honesty, of being willing to look. Sometimes the looking is, what's going on here? Why is there this resistance? This, the what's going on here is the willingness to back away from the defenses, the protection of our fragility. To not meet the Dharma with an idea. Really, I you know when I listen to some of these uh, Jataka tales where the Buddha is taking on incarnations of animals, and you know they're all ideal. You know the Bodhisattva. You know is the you know he's at the edge of a cliff and there's a dying lion, so he throws his body over the cliff so that the dying lion would have something to eat. I just I just want a gag. <laughs> <laughs> 
our humanness? Where's our human response? And if we gauge it to these tales, how do we come out? How many more lifetimes do we have to live before we have the, what? Stupidity to throw us out. This is a bear. This you feel. You feel as we come to this fragility how humbling it is to be a human being, unprotected human human being. To feel the hurt when somebody says something, and not to deny or distort that hurt whatsoever. For the messages of our own pain lie in how we are protecting ourselves from our pain. How we have arranged our consciousness so that we don't have to feel the messages of pain. How we can blame those messages on whatever circumstances or people lie outside of us. And the path of Dharma is to just let those messages in with the courage that can stand steadfast in the face of them. Not deflect them. And how fragile we are in each other's systems. Because another person can decimate us and has, and we are full of the scar tissue of how they have in the past. And each time we tell ourselves, I will never let another person do that to me. And a new barricade of the heart, a new protective defense comes down. And so we never allow another person to come that close, because to come that close means they could do that kind of damage anymore. Now you see the value of Sangha. When we are each other's worst enemies. And to feel our emotional life. with its depth and richness, with its texture. That takes real courage. And our Honesty begins by connecting to that emotional life, really. No longer projecting it out. 
is someone else's problem to solve. But to relish the messages of truth as they're coming in. Oh, wow. I can't believe I've been hiding like this. Sometimes it takes time. I can't tell you how often I get feedback and I just can't listen to it at the time it's being given. It just It's just too much to ask for me. So I just, I, I go off and I don't know, it can, it can be anywhere from a second to minutes to hours. <laughs> and which that, I just, I say, okay, so let's just line yourself up here. What's, what's blocking this? What untruth? What form of defense is blocking this message? How badly do I want to know? Very, very few times, and to be honest, I can't remember any time at all in which I haven't come back around. And sometimes there's no defense at all because after you do that a few hundred times, wanting to know the truth is more important than the protective reaction we have to the truth. Wanting to be authentic is... The, the wanting to be the authentic of the heart is more pressing than the fear of being authentic that, the, that is driven by the mind. While there is great fear to be an authentic. Don't fool ourselves. We do not want other people to know what we know about ourselves. We don't want people looking where we're afraid to look. We don't want anyone seeing into that. And these covered places, these hiding places, these closeted areas can remain untouched for the duration of our life until we wake up to what we've been doing. They can rest in latent form. No one's forcing us to have to see these things. No one's forcing us to have to live contrary to their messages. But at some point, it becomes unbearable for the heart to live in deceit. And it doesn't only come through in terms of one's resolution to stepping forward, but it comes through in action. In action. for the response of the body's intelligence. The body is often much further along in its development and readiness to come into that truth than the mind in its fear. I can see it in beginning classes when I start talking about the Dharma and have people sit. I can see in their body how 
intelligent their body is. Even though when they'll ask a question, it's like one of the, the basic most question you could ever ask, their mind hasn't even developed an understanding of what they're doing. Their body knows with certainty exactly what it's doing. And you can see it. Their mind hasn't grown to the intelligence of their body. You can feel it in Tai Chi and in yoga. You can feel the dynamics. You can feel the way and how people move. You can feel the harmony until they start speaking. <laughs> because there hasn't been a synchronicity. There hasn't been a willingness to bring forth all parts of herself in unison. Emotions remain barricaded behind our fear of what they what it implies about us to have this emotion. And the further we grow in sophistication spiritually, the less willing we are to expose those emotions because we have more and more contempt for them. And I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people who thought of themselves as being the most spiritual have the worst deaths because they simply won't allow themselves to be a dying human being. So we are back to our fragility. We are back to our humility, aren't we? We're back to being just a child in this. the accompanying wonder Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.